You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now into something new uh, for the next season of our church, into uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That is, uh, the writings of the Old Testament, and, and I want to invite you, it's right after First and Second Chronicles, in the, kind of the first half of the Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to, you'll, you'll find one uh, maybe under the seat that you're sitting on, or under the seat that's in front of you, and we would love to make that Bible a gift to you, but don't be afraid of the table of contents, whatever, whatever device you can get access to Ezra, uh, then I want you to invite you to do that, and we're going to do as is our custom to walk through a book of the Bible, this is a plug, um, we, we try to buy these in bulk, this is an ESV journal Bible, um, and this is just a great resource we want to make available to you, I'm sorry it wasn't here last week. Um, we, I would have loved to have shared this with you last week, but COVID delays and all that kind of stuff, it's not the first time. So uh, you'll find these on the tables outside. We would love for you to, to purchase one of these. Um, and, and this is for us just a tool, uh, a mechanism for understanding and learning and thinking about and applying Scripture uh, more more aptly. And so that's just simply I want to pitch to you. But we're going to be in the book of Ezra. We're going to start in the first chapter. We're going to kind of get a picture of where we're going to be going over the next couple of months. And I, I want to do my best to outline what we'll cover today, the, the history of the book of Ezra, and then, um, and then invite you to all that I believe God has for us in Ezra and Nehemiah. Originally in the in the first, the first Old Testament scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah were a singular unit. They were connected together, um, and they were at the very end of the, at the end of the Old Testament scripture, in the writings. So as you've heard me talk about before, the, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible that is our, that our, the Hebrew Bible that is our Old Testament consists of three primary categories. It's known as the Tanakh, the T, the Torah, that is the law, the Pentateuch. Literally the five scrolls, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then you have the Navi'im, that is the, right, the, the, the words of the prophets, the Navi, the prophets, right? And then you have the Ketuvim, that is the writings. And this squarely fits into the category of writings. Now it's interesting because it makes reference to other prophecies, but in this sense it's a part of the writings. And you'll see that together from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? First and second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, all the way to here, even to Esther, right? So, so here we are in the writings of the Old Testament. And I, I've got to give you a little bit of a crash course on history. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll fill in some of the gaps. But the date I want you to remember that maybe I, was hopefully kind of pounded into your head last year for the period of time that we were in the book of Lamentation is the, is the date 587. Now, some scholars will say 586. You can pick 586 or 587. 586 or 7. Pick one. And it is the date of the fall of Jerusalem. So the prophetic word of Jeremiah and then the prophetic lament that we went through in a lamentation was, was a cry out to God for the sorrow that the people had experienced when the promised land that they had been given, even though they rebelled against God, was utterly destroyed. And over a series of events, Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem as judgment against the rebellion of God's people. And when that finally came to a head was in 587. You can read about it if you, if you opened your Bibles or if you're looking at Ezra chapter 1, if you'll do me a favor, turn back one page and you'll see beginning in verse 17 of 2 Chronicles, that very passage outlines those events. 
That is the capture and fall of Jerusalem. We saw this in the book of Lamentation that God's people cried out for the judgment and punishment against them because they had rebelled against God and God allowed the Babylonians to come in and serve as, in that sense, God's punishment. Remember, gall, right? That is, it was medicine. God allowed the medicine to, 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 in that sense, cure and heal the people who had rebelled against him to come by the hands of the Babylonians. And so I want to begin reading in verse 22. Chronicles, often attributed to Ezra as well, a scribe. I'm going to read the last couple of verses of 2 Chronicles and if you don't have that, right, if you're looking at that, uh, if you're looking at Ezra chapter 1, don't worry, you're going to find that the exact couple of words that I'm going to read in 2 Chronicles are going to show up in the first couple of verses as we'll read for the, uh, the first section of Ezra chapter 1 together. So some 50, 70 years after, uh, after what has been prophesied that would happen to God's people, the conclusion of 2 Chronicles and the introduction to Ezra says this, verse 22, 2 Chronicles 36 Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he, was, he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now verse 1 of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradeth, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon, Babylonia to Jerusalem. 
I want to begin our time in these couple of books together over the next couple of weeks asking a few very personal questions. And I want you to either write them down, make some note of them. If you're really brave, lean over to the person next to you and answer these questions to them. If you're exceedingly brave and you trust the Holy Spirit's work in the people around you, then you can even ask them to answer them for you. Here are a few questions to begin our time in Ezra. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? Here are a few ways maybe you can break down that question, and I want you to write down these things. Where do you feel the most dead inside? Where do you experience the least spiritual vitality? Where in your life have you grown the coldest? Where do you desire to experience more joy? Where are you now the most discontent? I'm not kidding. Write it down. Make a mental note. Lean over to the person next to you and tell them the answer. The story of God working through Ezra and Nehemiah is a story of renewal. Many speak of it, and we'll make more of this over the next couple of weeks, but many speak of it as the second exodus in the Scripture. The first exodus being that as God's people had fallen into captivity under Pharaoh in Egypt, God stirred and began to work through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to to in that sense be broken and crushed so that God would be glorified in the deliverance of his people to the promised land, where they would be a people with a purpose in a particular place. And in that sense, Ezra and Nehemiah is the account of a second exodus, where people who had been granted everything, they had been given everything they needed in this promised land, in their discontentment, in their coldness, turned from God and rebelled, and began to worship other gods. That shouldn't surprise us after all, because if you'll remember, the first sin that we find recorded in the Bible, that is in the Garden of Eden, took place in perfection. Often we think that sin and rebellion against God is just some sort of a result of like our environment, right? Have you heard that? Like you did this awful thing and you're like, well, I was upset or this was what was going on. And, and make no mistake about it, that is, that's misdirection. That's a lie from Satan. The first sin took place when the, in the most perfect of circumstances. That's what sin does. Sin sees the, even the perfection of circumstances and wants more, wants to be God. And so when God delivered them from Egypt, and granted to them a promised land, a place for themselves where they were but to simply live as chosen, set-apart people. They couldn't do it. It wasn't enough. They wanted more. They wanted a king. And so God, relenting, gave them a king. They got what they wanted. And you know what happens when you get what you really want? It's not very good. And so even that king and others began to turn against God. And the one thing that got them in trouble in the beginning, worshiping other gods, trusting in lesser things, they started to do again, starting even with the king, that is Solomon. And he and the rest of the people began to worship other gods, marry other idol-worshiping people. 
And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah as God's punishment and discipline upon these people in exile to Babylon is the story of God's renewal of those people. A people dead and wandering and scattered by sin are drawn back into his presence to know him, to commune with him rightly. In many ways, that's the story of the entire Bible. The book of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, as a whole in that sense, they were, they're connected together. I would argue that it probably could be three different books. That is Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Strong name. I don't know. It should at least be someone's middle name at some point, right? The first six chapters of Ezra is not actually about Ezra. It's about a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And we'll be introduced to him over the next six chapters. Ezra doesn't even show up until the seventh chapter. And the seventh through tenth chapter is the story of Ezra leading as a scribe Right? Think one of the things you'll see throughout the entirety of Ezra is there's going to be lists. Did you catch that? There's going to be very accurate and detailed lists of things, of people and of objects. That's just for some of you. Like if you're an accountant in the room, you're going to love Ezra. That's, that's Ezra, man. Like he's just like, let's take note of this, right? And so there's going to be some places where in many ways we're going to skim through it because it's just an accounting. Um, but you're going to have the opportunity to see the details come through that. But Ezra is a scribe. His job was to pass on and record the writings, the sacred writings of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, and, and then to compile them into scrolls that people could read and encounter God through His Word. But the first six chapters are about Zerubbabel, a leader that God uses to bring His people back out of Babylon. And then comes Ezra, and then comes Nehemiah. Now, in many ways, we could probably go through the book of Nehemiah and, and not necessarily include Ezra. Nehemiah has its own kind of resolution to it that you could probably understand it without Ezra. However, you cannot understand fully Ezra without also having Nehemiah. So they were originally counted as one book under the efforts and authorship of Ezra and Nehemiah and other scribes. We have an account of people being brought back from Babylon. People who were displaced people who were scattered, people who were isolated and discouraged. Would any of those words describe your experience of the last year and a half? Scattered, isolated, dismayed, discouraged? The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are for the homeless, for the people who feel out of place. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like you just don't belong? Have you ever felt like you stand out? Like at any given moment, they're going to rush in and take you out because you don't belong there. Then Ezra and Nehemiah is for you. There's lessons for us, encouragement for us, when we feel out of place, when we feel like we don't belong, when we feel like we're unwelcome. But there's also, I want to contend for over the weeks to come, lessons for leaders. Quite literally, these are some of the most important leaders at a turning point in the history of God's people, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And especially in the book of Nehemiah, you'll see the, the lessons of leaders prominently through prayer. This is important for us, and in, in, in the coming months and years, our desire is that we would lay, like you'll see in the, in the weeks to come, lay a foundation for what God is going to do in and through the life of our church. And that means including things like, for some of you, it may be 
membership, covenanting to be God's people in this place for a purpose. But it means for our church then laying foundations like installing deacons, servants of the church, installing pastor elders. And so in that sense, there are lessons for leaders that I want you to learn and long for and pray for with me. But most importantly, there are lessons for those who need to experience new life. Renewal. A word you might be familiar with is revival. Places where we feel dead inside. Where we don't have a sense of joy. We're cold, spiritually lifeless, and discontent. And Ezra and Nehemiah are an invitation for those of us who feel out of place and in exile. For those of us who are discouraged For those of us who long to love life rather than dread it. To find it in the very presence of God. So, in this first chapter I read, you caught in the first couple of verses a connection between what we find here and the story of what God had been doing through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Namely, establishing a king through David, a monarch, but then working even in rebellion as the, as the kingdom divided and blew up. And so, for those of us who read this and pick up in that story, on one hand, we, we're meant to have hope for God's fulfilled promises. Did you, did you hear that word there? Fulfilled in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Did you hear that? So for us, we're, we're meant to contemplate what it means for God to love and care for his people such that he makes promises and keeps them. And so, on the other hand, when we experience those fulfilled promises, we also are left longing for more. Ezra and Nehemiah provide profound examples of spiritual renewal, lessons about leadership, and even deep comfort that comes through God's fulfilled promises. But you'll see over the next couple of series of events, they end abruptly and leave you in some, and kind of hanging, wanting more. They leave you deeply unsatisfied with the end result and longing for something else, longing for even more. Friend, that will be the mantra of our time in these books, and that will be the life of the Christian as long as we live in a broken, fallen world marred by sin. And so in that, this is a formative practice for us to experience renewal, that God fulfills his promises, and yet at the same time know there is more that we need and more that we want. And for the Christian, longing for Jesus to come back and make all things new is what we sang about just a moment ago, and it's what we hope for every day. So, there will be lessons about rebuilding. It's the word you'll hear more often than any, about repenting, turning to God, and then leading others, others to, do this, to do that very thing. So what you find here in this section, you see that the Lord speaks, and those obje- objectives are accomplished. See in the first verse, right? The first year of Cyrus, just like God said it would happen in Jeremiah, this is what took place. Secondly, beginning in, the cha- in verse 2, you'll see that the Lord provides for his will and his promises to be fulfilled. Did you hear that? A list of things that started to happen. Cyrus says, do this, 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 and people started giving this, that, and the other, right? And then lastly, we see that the Lord brings them new life. You see this in verse 1, and you see it in verse 5. 
What happened to Cyrus? The Lord, in the middle of verse 1, stirred him up. What happened to the people in verse 5? Then rose the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin and priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred. The Lord stirs them, renews them, brings new life and vitality. And so in this first chapter, you see the beginnings of the first objective to renewal. Namely, they're going to rebuild the altar and the temple. You'll see three building projects in Ezra and Nehemiah. The altar, the temple, and the walls. And the first thing that happens is we're invited to contemplate how this story came to pass. If you want to, I want to give you a list of things that might help you understand a very complicated time in history and a complicated part of the Bible. In this sense, I'll, I'll do my best, but this is, this is kind of a difficult, like there's going to be a difficult, steep learning curve for putting all these books of the Bible together. It's okay. Hang with me, right? Over time, they'll make more sense. The more you read the Bible and understand what's going on, the better you'll get at it. It will seem disorienting at first. Don't worry. We'll get through it together. But a whole lot of things converge here. And so remember I told you there are multiple categories of a book in the Bible, the prophets and the writings. In some sense, those, those are not at all like chronologically laid out. They happen in many ways at the same time. And so let me give you some examples. If you, if you want to look at Daniel chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 9, I commend them to you. But notice how we're introduced to a, a period in history where Cyrus if you, some of your history of civilization buffs, you're going to know him as Cyrus the Great, came as the, as the leader of, the, at that time, the, the greatest empire in the world, the, the Persians or the Medo-Persians, and, and they came in and took over the Babylonians. The Babylonians had been taking over most of the known world at that particular time, and, and in this particular place, like, you'll see some really amazing things all happening at once. And Daniel chapter 5 predicts how that's going to happen. Remember this, a, a king comes to comes to uh, have encountered writings on the wall because he was, did you, did you hear what would happen? Remember, did you, did you hear what, what was taking place with Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king? He had taken those things that Nebuchadnezzar has, had put in his own place. Did you hear that in the last couple of verses of Second Chronicles? He had taken the holy things of God that represented God's character and nature and he had put them in his own temple. And this king, in that sense, kind of like a, a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, came along and, and had a party and was like, hey, look, I know what we should do in our party. Remember those really nice things that we took from Jerusalem? Let's have a party with those things. That'd be fun, right? They're like first cosplay. Let's dress up like the, like the, like the Israelites and let's like pretend like we're them. And they start having a party with these sacred wares, these things that represented God's presence. Well, something happened. He immediately like, kind of got freaked out and had a vision, and there was writing on the wall. And he reached out to Daniel, who he, at that particular time, he had known, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all these guys who had been exiled off to Babylon, reached out to him and said, hey, what does this mean? And Daniel comes along and says, well, I'm glad you asked. It's kind of bad. It means that, literally, that what's happening here is that you've been weighed and measured and been found wanting. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will come now and remove your authority and pass it on to a Persian king. And it's said that that king died that very night. So, when we get to the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we're meant to be invited into considering what God has already been doing. 
And in case we miss that, he says, by the way, that's what the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Isaiah said. Probably, I, I, again, keep noting this down, Jeremiah 29, something that this is probably on a, on a coffee table somewhere if you, if you have some religious Christian friends, and it's probably totally out of context, and you would do well by asking them to read the rest of Jeremiah 29. It's not a story of how God's going to bless you with prosperity. It's a story how God's going to drag you through exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, beginning in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29, God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Right? Because the minute you know you don't belong, your 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 first instinct is to isolate, right? It's to turn inward. Right? Build a little huddle of people who look, talk, and act like you. And he says, don't do that. I'm sending you to Babylon, but you're going to bear witness to my character even in exile. So be fruitful there. Multiply there. Don't walk around and mope. Thrive there. Remember, this is the exact, exact same story of, remember what happened with the midwives in, uh, under, under Pharaoh? Right? Like, Man, they just keep having babies before we could even stop them from having babies. They're just thriving and multiplying. It's like this, this fulfillment of the mandate all the way back into the garden. Be fruitful, multiply. And, and Jeremiah is saying, even in exile, you still have this. Be fruitful, multiply, thrive in the culture in which I place you. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Do you hear that? This is the call of the church, isn't it? It's hard to love Sioux Falls if you hate them. It's hard to love the culture if you think they're after you. That's why Jesus says you're going to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. It's a picture of the new homecoming we have in Christ, and it's a foretaste here in Jeremiah. Thrive there. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. These prophets were saying, hey, man, you know, just huddle up. Don't, don't, don't interact with anyone. God's going God's to fix all this any moment. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. That is Jerusalem, the promised land. Here it comes. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And all of it happened, according to Ezra, just as God had planned. One of the first things I think we see here, if you're you're thinking about the ingredients to renewal, it's this. As we see the three components here, God's word and promise, his presence, that they'll come back to him, right? Even Cyrus wishes that that God would be with them. And then even he says, like, you're going to experience some sort of, like, Ezra tells us they're going to experience some sort of stirring, 
some sort of sense of purpose, if our hearts delight in the promise, they're all here, in the presence and in the purpose of God, then we can lose earthly comforts without fear. Think of it this way. One of the key ingredients that Ezra tells us is necessary for experiencing new life, revival, renewal, is comfort in the sovereign plan of God. One of the key ingredients, think of it this way, I'll talk about this more in the weeks to come. One of the key ingredients to experiencing renewal is locating your own story within God's greater story. For many of you, the lifelessness, the bitterness, the discontentment that you experience is because you're often trying to fit God's story into your own rather than trying to understand and discern how your story fits into his. Do you, do you hear all the narratives coming to a head here? It seems like some weird, strange things are happening in the world. Cyrus and the Persians came and knocked out the Babylonians. And yet what we find is that is exactly what God told Jeremiah to tell his people would happen. It's exactly what was going to happen. And real renewal, experiencing spiritual vitality is when you can look at the circumstances and know that God is going to work them together for some good. Maybe you won't understand it. Maybe you won't even see it. Maybe you will die before you can discern it. But there will come a day when every single knee will bow and tongue will confess Jesus is Lord because Jesus is the fulfillment of this. That God could use the most awful of circumstances. A pagan, uh, right, right, like a, a, a pagan ruler like Pilate. A bunch of betraying, befuddled, disgruntled and discouraged disciples. An old rugged cross to bring about joy for the nations. That's what God does, and real joy, real spiritual vitality, real sense of contentment comes when you know no matter what happens, God is still at work. It's the key ingredient to renewal. It's the thing that I want to invite you as a church and personally to begin to contemplate and experience. Beg, contend to understand what God is doing. It's okay. We saw this in Lamentation. God, I don't know what you're doing. God, would you show me? Grant me trust. And when that begins to happen, when we, begin to, when we begin to see and delight in what God might be doing in all of existence, we have comfort, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. We see God working his promises, bringing them to pass. We experience the presence of God in the midst of trial. And then we understand that we have a purpose. Right? Did you hear? Like, multiply there. Thrive there. But it's really terrible. I know. That's the point. That's how God will get the glory. People will go like, how are these people not, why are these people not freaking out like everybody else? Why are these people thriving? Why, why do they seem to be joyful when the rest of the world seems to be divided and, and killing one another? They'd be like, they must have a hope somewhere else then. They must not hope in the same things you and I are hoping, and they must be hoping in another world. They must see something we don't see. And sure, they'll think we're delusional, but you and I will know that, in fact, we are just waiting and anticipating God's promises to come true for us. Think of it this way. Any place in your life that you're willing to sin 
and even excuse it is a lack in trust for the sovereignty of God. Think of it, when, when you know that God has a plan and he's going to bless you and carry you through, you can live by his purpose, right? But sin is when we look at God's purpose and plan and think, I know better, right? And that's, and that's, that's where we live, right? We live in this tension of you and I, like our desires and, and the things we long for are in contradiction to what God has for us. And that's what sin is, is to live in a posture of saying, I know better than God. That's what we do when, when, we, when we look around and we say, like, I know better than God with respect to my own sexuality. I, I know better than God with respect to my own relationships and my family. I know better than God with respect to my job, my career, my sense of purpose in the world. I know better, than, right? Do you hear it? Like, I know better than God than these other places. And that's what sin is. Sin is when we go like, thanks, God. I appreciate the suggestion, but I'll be God now and I'll do what I want. And experiencing renewal always involves going back to what God has already said to and about you. It's trusting that what God has for you is better. There is a God an author to this whole story, and that God is good. And when you begin to, like, even now, maybe now, if, if you're in this, in, the, in this room even now, like, if you're not a believer, if, like, when that begins to, like, crack into your heart, like, admit, like, that's a cool thing to consider, right? There's a God that actually wants to work things together for my good? And that starts to give you life, doesn't it? That's, that's like vitality. Where you're like, oh, okay, okay. I thought this week was the end of all things, but... But if you're saying that it's not, then maybe I can make it another week, right? And the key ingredient for experiencing renewal, what we find here in Ezra, is that we begin to consider that what's happening around us is not a surprise to a good and faithful and loving God. And the closer we draw to Him, the closer we draw to Him, the higher our anchor is in this world. We're not stuck and tethered to it. I heard one person say it this way, the closer we draw to him, the more that our tent stakes in this world are pulled up. And that's the experience of renewal, of revival. We have new life and new hope. Now, I'll stop for a minute and, and just define a term here. When I say revival, that, that might have been unhelpful for many of you. I know there are times in my own life where that is. There's, there's a difference between what we would re call revival and revivalism, something that's revival or revivalistic. So revival is when God inhabits ordinary means of faithfulness and pours out some sort of blessing and some sort of uh, vitality and spiritual renewal, new life and, and new joy through the ordinary means of following and trusting him in the world. Revivalism is when you, you take the methods of that renewal and you put them above the work of God in it. Right. So, so for many of you, if, if I said revival... We're, like right now, if I said, hey, Connection Church, we're going to have a revival, right? In your head, you think of something, and you probably think of what I would say is something that's revivalistic, namely the methods or modes of revival, rather than the master of revival. And real revival is when God inhabits ordinary, unimpressive means to do amazing and life-altering things. So, 
note, this isn't a call to like, hey, let's do it like we used to, right? That's not helpful, right? Remember Ecclesiastes says, wishing you could go back to the old days, not wise, kind of foolish, right? Because you always think you're smarter, right? You always think, oh yeah, I would do better if we went back. No, you wouldn't. Probably not. Same sinful person would travel back in time, right? Ever seen any Back to the Future movies? You get it. So, so in this sense, like, we long for and expect God to pour himself out even through ordinary, unimpressive things. Unimpressive things like you and I do every single week. We get together. We do some, I, I never want to like diminish the, just the absurdity of this. We sing. It's weird. And if you're new in this, in this room, like, that's weird. Why are you doing like, Is this a soccer game or something? Like, why are we singing? Because other than that, where, where else do people sing? I mean, people sing for you. But where do we sing together? It's, it's, there's rare. It's very rare for us. But we do that because it's formative for us. We sit and open the Bible and anticipate what God might do and that God might speak. And experiencing renewal is when we think about what God has already said and what God has already done for us. That's what we do every week. And the longing for revival and renewal is when God inhabits that in a powerful way. You can't start it or stop it. You can't finish it. Practically, this means that for some of you, if you want to experience new spiritual vitality, it will include going back to what God has already said to you. I see this all the time, right? Uh, People who want a new thing, right? And it's like, I want God to do this new thing. And God may do that, and I long for that. But it starts with, hey, what did you do with the last thing God gave you? And for many of you, like experiencing God's blessing in the next season is repenting from your faithlessness in the last. Right? Like it's, it's like, I wrecked three cars. I want a new one. You, part of it is like, hey, I think, think there might be some things that need to change before we do that again. And the Lord is faithful and kind not to bless you with a new outpouring of his presence until you begin to experience gratitude for the thing that he's called you to do even before. And for some of you, you're, you're, you're obsessed with what you want God to do in the next season, and I just want you to stop for a minute and think about what you might repent of and experience grace in the last. And revival, renewal, experiencing new spiritual vitality often means we stop and we think about, hey, where have I, where have I been faithless in the past? And that is a strange and powerful means of experiencing blessing in the future. The second thing I think we see, not only that God speaks, is that God stoops. Look how Cyrus even speaks in this way. Cyrus is like, I've got everything I need. I'm going to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Hang on for a minute, a little history lesson. Uh, some people think that like Cyrus is like a believer, a faithful person. It's not true. Uh, I, I encourage you to kind of run into the history of civilization. You look at uh, what's, what's known as like the Persian, a cylinder of Cyrus, in which he even says like, so where the Babylonians would have come in and wiped everyone out and had them all worship, uh, worship, their, worship their gods, the Persians were like, hey, let's try. that didn't work, so let's try something else. And so they're like, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll send all these people back home, and then they'll worship their gods, and then they'll ask their gods to bless me. Right? It's really, kind of clever, right? He's like, he's just a good pagan. He's covering all his bases, right? He's like, he's like, let's send them all back. Let's ask them all to worship their God and say, hey, man, would you pray for me when you do that? And hey, I'm gonna, maybe, maybe this will work, right? So don't be fooled here. Like, in this sense, Cyrus is not like a godly person. Uh, Cyrus is, is, in this sense, a puppet, right? And the master is using him in his play. 
But praise God, it, it seems like he's saying some true statements, right? There's, there's the Lord, the God of heaven, right? You'd almost be like, man, this guy's theologically sound. Eh, some people use religious language as a smokescreen. Maybe you've seen that before. I don't know. So he, he's given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Frankly, he told all the other religions that he had conquered the same thing. And so he says, whoever's among you, all his people, listen to what he says, may his God be with him. And then maybe they go back and do their thing. So, so he's saying what they need to experience renewal, renewal for that is the very presence of God. God not only speaks, but God stoops. God lowers himself to be present with these people. And that, my friend, we'll see this over the next couple of, of, of months, is the defining characteristic of God's people that he is present with them. Think of it this way. We don't share the same rules, customs, or values. We know the same God. We are tempted often as we make God into our own image and make images to worship, that we make community in its image as well, even if it's our own image. But I want to encourage you for just a minute. We are not ultimately known in the world and experiencing joy now because we share the same rules, customs, or values. We experience joy in the world and harmony and community with one another because we have all met the same God. We have beheld Him And now we're messed up. We can't look away. But that means that, and you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. I love my favorite example is this, is when when God encounters Moses, right? He's like, you know, go to this next thing. And and Moses cries out for a couple things. We sing about this a a couple times. He's like, uh, he says like, look, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go. All I want is to... Lord, just show me your glory. I just want to see you one more time. I just want to behold you. I want to see, I want to know what it's like to be in your presence. And our identity then isn't based on people's preference, but instead God's presence. This is so important. What I told you, the identity we share here that gives us life, and, we, and in, in, that, in, that, in that life we have together, we experience new vitality It's not that we share the same rules, custom, or values. It's that we have all met the same God. I believe that has been on, like, trial for the last year and a half. Why we're really here is our politics. What you really need to team up on and gang up against is politics. What you really need to see eye to eye on is vaccines. What you really need to agree on is masks. What you need, right? You hear it? That's what you really, that's why you're here. And here's the thing. For some of you, that's actually true. And the evidence is, if I said the wrong thing politically, you're out. If I told you I voted for the wrong person or supported the wrong cause, you're gone. And if you found out some of the people in this room voted for the person you hate or supported the cause you hate, like, you're gone. Two things. One, repent. Repent of finding loyalty in lesser things. 
Second thing, behold. Behold an eternal God. Behold, you can meet God. You can encounter God. God will come and and draw himself near to you. He will intervene in your story. And here's the thing, when that happens, you'll want to hang around other people that happen to them too. And the means of experiencing renewal is when we throw aside those other things and long for and desire for the presence of God above all. Have you ever heard someone talk about heaven and they don't even need Jesus in it? They get their mansion, streets of gold, and all that stuff, right? That's one of the craziest things about heaven. There'll be no, like, all these other things, like your politics and your policies, they'll all be gone. They won't even exist. And all you'll get is God. And the greatest thing about heaven is a, we find as a foretaste in Ezra and Nehemiah. We come home. Oh, it's great when I come home. Like, there's comfortable beds there. There's like, there's like comfortable couches there. Lots of cool stuff there. But you know the best thing about coming home to my house? Who's there? And we get a foretaste in Ezra and Nehemiah what we will experience in heaven. The greatest thing about heaven is that God will be there. He'll be there. He'll wipe away every tear. He'll make everything all right. And when we begin to desire God's presence more than we desire for the meeting of our preferences, that's when we get a foretaste of heaven and experience God's presence. I mean, I'd, be, I'd be wrong not to just point this out. Like, that's why every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne. Like, no one culture, no one language, no one people will be able to, like, rightly display God's glory. It will be this wild amalgamation. And here's a, there's a catch of it, someone here, right? There's a lot of you. You're not from Sioux Falls. And we get a little foretaste of it, don't we? And the more that you become a part of this church, the more our culture reflects, like, you. Because that's how God gets glorified. We don't bow to anyone's preferences. We just get together and long for presence. We long to meet with God and we contend for that because we know that real experience, an experience of real new life happens as a result. Here's the last thing. God speaks, God stoops to be present with his people, and then God stirs. Did you catch it in verse 1? God stirred up Cyrus, right? Again, hear that language of what God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God's messing with Like, God's doing some stuff, right? God's writing a story, and he's inviting all history into it. But then something else happened. Not only was that pagan leader stirred, but in verse 5, then rose up the heads of the fathers houses houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. God drops down into the story and inhabits his people and stirs them up. He grants them new life. That's where we experience renewal. That's where we experience a revitalized faith and joy and hope and contentment in this life and forever. And the places where we long for and experience God stirring us up. It's what God loves to do. 
It's what God desires to do. And the ending story is that a remnant of people in which God inhabits experience the presence and the provision of God. A word you're going to hear me use over and over over the next couple of months is that word remnant. It's a small minority of people who remain faithful. They've been whittled down. They're the remnant of people that have experienced God's presence and been stirred up by it. One of my concerns every week is that you'll leave this place on a given Sunday that we've gathered and you'll talk about something else. Right? You'll leave this place and you'll talk about the sermon, the person preaching the sermon, the music, the whatever. Think of like anything other than the transforming and stirring presence of God. That's my greatest fear. You'll, you'll leave talking about that. My prayer is that people would talk about Connection Church and describe not their demographic or their politics, but instead they would describe this church as a people through whom they have experienced God himself. And I know for many of you that it sounds mystical and scary, right? Well, I know what it's really about. Like, okay, fine. Try to, try to find what you want outside of God's presence, right? And if that sounds scary or terrified, one, you've never met him. You don't know what he's like. And two, you might be afraid to meet him because you know there's sin, there's something that would discount you from his presence. And you haven't heard how he has provided a place in his presence by Christ. He has provided a sacrifice for sin that stirs up your soul and draws you into his presence. Because, friend, the place where God has spoken, the place where God has stooped, and the place where God has stirred is Jesus Christ. There is no more powerful word that God has spoken according to the Gospel of John than the Logos, the word that became flesh in Jesus Christ. And the word that God spoke to rowdy, rebellious, sinful people wasn't condemnation, it was welcome. Come back, come home. I see you wandering, come back. And not only did he speak, that he stooped. He came to be with us and for us, to be tempted just like you and just like me, to walk a life of suffering, be betrayed, and yet be present with us, to lead his people through sin, death, hell, and the grave, carrying all of them. Until what? God stirred. Jesus, who absorbed all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our condemnation, was dead. Dead. Rigor mortis had set in. His body was cold. It was lifeless. No thoughts had gone through his brain. No blood had coursed through his veins. And what did God do? He spoke. He stooped, came down, and he stirred. And he brought life where there was death. And friend, you and I, as we behold that, when we see that, when we're invited home to the presence of God in that, we are stirred ourselves. Back to the questions. Where do you want to experience new life? Where do you want to experience renewal? Don't be abstract. Be specific. And contemplate for just a moment that like a father delights to give good gifts to his children, 
Our Father wants to give you every single one of these, these things. He has not withheld his own son. How on earth would he withhold any of these things? Friend, the ingredients for experiencing new life is contemplating that our story is wrapped up in a bigger story. That our story is enveloped by a story of of his speaking lovingly to his people, him stooping to be with them and present with them, and then stirring them to new life. And when we behold Jesus, the God who became a man and who overcame death on our behalf, that's when we experience new life. I want to invite you as we close. Normally, this is I just say, let's pray, and, and I kind of leave you to like pray along with me. But here's the thing: I want you to pray for these specific things. I want you to contend and beg the Lord to give you the answer for these things, and beg the Lord that in Christ He would give them to you. Beg the Lord that you would behold in the lifeless and cold, dead places in your life the resurrection of Jesus that is victorious over death, hell, and sin. Let's pray together and let's ask God for these things. In your own words, I want you to, I want you to speak to God. Maybe you haven't spoke to him in a long time. <laughs> Maybe your first words are going to be angry. That's okay. Would you just admit what's true as the answer to some of those questions? Secondly, I want you to thank God. Thank God that he has lowered himself and stooped down to us in Jesus. And in your own words, ask that we, that you, would begin to experience these things as you behold Christ. God, we confess we wander like the Israelites. They are kindred spirits for us. I thank you that your scripture doesn't gloss over that. Thank you for how honest it is. God, in in this life, in this world marred by sin, we are so easily overwhelmed by what's around us. We long for lesser things. We find hope in lesser things. And so I, I pray that even even in this room, as we're longing for lesser things and hoping in lesser things, would you, would you allow them to crumble? <laughs> if it means experiencing something like exile, then would you allow that to happen? Would you allow those lesser things to fail? Would you loosen our grip on them? Not so that we would be in despair, but so that we would pass through being dismayed and experience your presence and grace. God, we don't long for the right things. We need you to stir us and give us the right desires. We don't long for your presence like we should. We long for lesser things. Would you stir us up to long for what's truly glorious, what's truly beautiful, what's truly eternal? Stir us to long for those things. And as we do, would you satisfy each of those longings in Christ? 
For those of us who long for love, would you pour out that love that you've demonstrated in Christ? For those of us who long for acceptance and belonging, would you welcome us as you've welcomed the sinner and the wanderer in Christ? For those of us who are burdened and full of sorrow, would you, would you grant us comfort? For those of us who feel out of control, would you begin to remind us and give us peace that you hold all things together according to the counsel of your own will? Welcome us back and grant us our deepest longings in your presence. Lord, better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, all the pleasures that we can imagine are in your right hand forevermore. Give us these things now in Jesus Christ. Amen.